Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the Beauty RKO. We are a comedy, fashion history, shady podcast, bringing all the most amazing, scandalous, juicy details of history that you kind of forgot, but I'm bringing back. And um, we're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel on Full Service Radio. I am your host, Mr. Professor... God, I'm like, I'm all genders. I'm all genders all the time. What can I say? I'm not even Mr. I'm Miss. I'm Mr. I'm all genders. I am your professor, Professor Noir. And I have a special guest with me today, a dear friend and photographer who does fashion and culture, society, travel, photojournalism, art, um, art photography, Miss um, Kate Warren. Hello, thank you very much for having me on the show today. Thank you for being here. I'm really super. I'm so excited. This is me too. This is my first official real show, you guys. We're doing it live out here, people. Doing it live. And just so you know, listening at home, we are in here dressed in like ninjas. Both, <laughs> both Professor Noir and I are wearing all black and turtlenecks. <laughs> yes, and turtlenecks. Well, I mean, it goes into the subject of the show today. So mm-hmm. you. You know, Beauty Archeo comes from my love of history and since for the Beauty Archaeologist, but you know, I, it's, I'm a millennial. I, want to just, I have to shorten something somewhere. Um, but I, I love fashion greatly. I call myself a fashion apostle. At one point, I was a fashion disciple. I was a follower. And now I preach the word of fashion and style. <laughs> and I do that through history. And, you know, history, the great thing about history, especially like learning history through the context of like art or, you know, politics, or even medicine, medical history is really interesting. You learn a lot about how people think, about how people did things back in the day, about, and realize that a lot of times we are the same, just different clothes. Mm-hmm. I always say that about history, same shit, different clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and honestly, sometimes same clothes coming back around. <laughs> um, speaking of fashion, speaking of like some crazy history making fashion news fashion drama going yeah, down let's jump into the tea let's jump into all the t- all the tea all the tea so uh, there have been some scandals in the fashion industry based around race and race right now is a very hot button subject people are talking about it mm-hmm. which is amazing it's difficult it is a hard conversation to have it's a hard thing to receive as well you know because again you are a designer you know you are a non non-personal color you know what i mean you are a white european designer you're a white american designer you are perceived or or presenting as white and you make something and you know you do not think about all of the aspects of it and is that forgivable is that not you know what i mean we're in that we're in that time right now i think that we're trying to make that decision right totally and just so the listeners at home know um I'm I'm white and you are black. <laughs> I am black. I am black. I'm coming out, which is why Noir is there. Yes, hello, so Professor you, Noir. <laughs> yeah, if you for, if you didn't get that. So so to to so to give folks a little bit of an idea, um, and and I'm familiar, so maybe we can like talk through all the different things that have happened. Yeah. Do you want to sort of like what's the news? Like what? How have all these how have all these different designer houses been like? 
uh, either appropriately or most often inappropriately engaging well, on the topic of race. I mean, like, let's ta- let's get into it. Let's really dig into this. So Gucci had a really fabulous um, resort collection show. Resort collections are collections that happen between um, fall or uh, spring and fall collections. Pre-fall happens between spring and fall. It's weird. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So absolutely. basically in a fashion in a fashion year, January, February, a little bit of March, you have the winter collections for the next year. Mm-hmm. Because pe- buyers for stores are buying to, a year out to, in advance yeah. based on the old model of buying. Now, some brands are now showing um, like CNET, what's called See Now, Buy Now. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. So the sort of the model is being questioned, but anyway, usually well, and they're showing a year in advance. And that's the thing is like that's another thing is like these pre-fall collections, these resort collections are becoming that as see now buy now for those clients that can afford it to see now and buy now. Right. And so in these interim collections, you know, a lot of designers kind of really go, you know, balls to the walls with creativity. They they're no holds barred collections, which is really great about them. They're not necessarily having to like abide by a standard trend set in the fashion industry for fall and for spring summer collections and so gucci did an amazing show in my opinion i love the show it was really fabulous they do a lot of layered looks Mm-hmm. They do a lot of layered looks. And Gucci's re- been really maximalist That's ever since like the creative director, Alessandro Michel, came in. Exactly. Thank very you for that. Very extra. Thank you for that. No, it's a very... And that's the thing. It's like, they're not Tom Ford. This is Alessandro Michel. It's a, different, it's a different creative direction. So they do a lot of layered looks. And a blogger, you know, with a very poignant eye, pointed out the fact that there is a half face mask, half wool face mask, in all black with big red lips. Yeah. And it is on a white model. And, you know... So so let's talk about why that's well, problematic. I mean, well, that's the thing. Is, and in that, let's talk about the history of blackface. Well, I mean, I don't want to go too far into the history of blackface because okay. that's, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's, that is a whole season in itself. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, blackface, for people that don't know, is a old um, form of entertainment that was race entertainment in the late 1800s and early 1900s that was really popularized then, Mm -hmm. but does have roots further, further back into the Renaissance, into Italy. Right. Um, And you still see it happening today, unfortunately. Exactly, which is what we're talking about. And what it is is that it is a person, a non-white person, a white person, or a non-black person, a white person, painting their face and their features to over-exaggerate what they think a black person looks like. So making big red eyes, doing really dark skin, having big red lips... You know, right? So that's the imagery that was called in through this mask that was created by Gucci. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, like that is problematic. It is problematic. You know, it's reinforcing stereotypes. It's reinforcing stereotypes, and we are also at a time now where, because we're talking about race, we are people are their eyes are open. You know, we do have a a cancel culture where people do try to call people out and not necessarily get all the facts Mm -hmm. and really try to, like, find a solution. It's more just like you need to go away forever. But there is a thing where people's eyes are open. Right. And we're receiving a lot more that we didn't see before. And it's jarring to know that there's so much of this out there. There, yeah, there, there really is. And it's been interesting to see as sort of a, a bunch of these different brands have had sort of these moments, mm-hmm. right? Like Gucci had the face mask. I think Fendi had some keychains. Fendi had some keychains. But also the thing is, too, is just like, you know, as a black person, as a person that also follows fashion very heavily, I, I personally don't see those images when I look at those pieces. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I really, really don't. Because the thing is, is that it's not just one item that they're making, it's a one piece in a slew of different colors. Right. So for me, I think 
a collection, I think just an item. But for other people, it is jarring because it still brings up these images. I'm not saying that right. I'm more evolved because there's other things that bring up, you know, racial images for me that mm -hmm. may not for other people. Believe me. Right. You know, it is a very jarring thing to case to, by case. A case by case basis. But it's something to think about nowadays. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's oh. interesting to see how these brands are sort of reacting as people are pushing back. Exactly. Right. Like so many of them um, are having these sort of like white frailty driven reactions of like, no, 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 like that's not what we meant at all. Like we're, you know, we're really sorry if you, if you took it that way um, versus saying like, Hey, like we really screwed up here. Clearly we have more learning to do in yeah. the area of how we're representing like this kinds of imagery that can be perceived as being sensitive. Right. So like Prada, for instance, put out a piece. Um, I'm shaking my head right now in agreement with her people because <laughs> you can't actually see me. It's not a video. It's, it's like, a yes, podcast. We're, yes, we're yeah, snapping. We're snapping. snapping. <laughs> but it's true though. People, they're doubling down instead of like apologizing. And it's right. not. But Prada apologized. Yeah, and, Prada and, they, apologize. and they brought in a bunch of different um, black artists to be consultants on the brand to make sure like this kind of thing never happens again. Exactly. You know, and, and it's funny because you think about it and it's just like, well, why didn't you do that before? But because they're protected by their own privilege. It's, and that's the thing. It's just like you're not you're, you, you never had to face it. Right. If you, you, if you can ignore to, race yeah. and, and say like, oh, I don't see color, then you're benefiting from privilege. Most often white privilege or proximity to white privilege. Yeah. Or a class thing as well. It's totally. a very much so a class thing as well. Yes. You know, with fashion, it's not just race. It is a class thing. Yeah. One hundred percent. And so you live in that. We are going to talk about some of that in a little bit of this this subject because we are going right. to be talking about Karl Lagerfeld today. He past blessings blessings to him i do want to mention another thing mm -hmm. um before we get into carl before we get into carl two more things in terms of fashion news making history um in terms of you know the evolution of where we're coming with fashion in terms of going transgressing the racial aspects and breaking those hurdles breaking those glass ceilings the oscars Ah, oh, yes. The Oscars. The, the main, one of the most mainstream forums for the masses to experience this like high-level fashion. To high-level fashion, to, to set the standard for high-level beauty mm -hmm. for the year. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? That really sets a standard for what people strive to look like in trends and what, you know, mm -hmm. going to the gyms and, you know, new... Yeah, because it's, bo it's, body, it's body, you know, and beauty standards yeah. as well. It, gender very much norms, so. all of it. And, ge and gender norms. Let's talk about And uh, Billy Porter. Yes. <laughs> like, broke that glass ceiling so hard. Who is a, a queer actor. Who is a queer actor. And this is the thing about Billy Porter, which I find really fucking amazing, that he is not the first guy to wear a women's outfit or so women's wait, clothing. we or, have to tell them in case they haven't seen it. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I always go too far. I always <laughs> just go because I just think about it. I'm just there already there. And thank God I have someone to anchor me. So Billy Porter, black male queer actor, mm -hmm. um, latest roles on Pose, really famous show, um, all black gay and trans cast Woo. about ball culture in the 1980s. Um, and he uh, arrives at the Oscars in this beautiful Christian Siriano velvet tuxedo dress. Ball gown. Ball gown. Huge ball skirt. So With like tailored tuxedo crop jacket top and giant flowing voluptuous princess and, skirt and crinolines and crinolines and crinolines oh, are underskirts yeah. tool underskirts that make the dress really so poofy. he's doing the most he, is, he did all dress. of it he did all of it <laughs> he did all of it i will say i did get a glimpse of the shoe 
it wasn't the right shoe. Because I'm just like, if you're going there, the shoe cannot... You have to go there with that shoe. Yeah. And I was like, you was, look like you're going to... Was he wearing like a, like a court shoe? It was, I feel like it was... I, I want to say it was like a men's boot. Uh, okay. So I feel like I, I saw that glimpse, but I may be wrong. If Billy Porter, if you happen to be listening at any <laughs> point, let mean, me know. I mean, I will. You can ask the internet. Follow, but, but to me, that's know? a little bit interesting, right? Because then he's wearing a more masculine shoe. Yes. Um, that is a bit more expected. And he's using that to sort of subvert this very feminine yes. article of clothing that's making such a statement. Exactly. And the way he carried himself was so regal that it wasn't about yes. a man in a dress. The outfit was his. Right. He owned the outfit. The outfit did not own him. He really showed that like fashion can be for anyone. For anyone. For anyone. It is genderless. If they make you feel like you are living your best self. Yeah. Can be for anyone. It's genderless. I mean, think about how many women have worn suits and tuxedos to these kinds of events. You look amazing in these heels peeled boots you're wearing right now. (laughs) Thank you. I biked in these crocodile stilettos. Oh my god, you're doing it. (laughs) I did. We both did it. Well, you arrived on a scooter. I I did I did hop on a scooter to come here today. And I biked my beautiful fashion scooter. Fashion scooter. (laughs) And I biked on my beautiful grey and red wheel bike. Fabulous. Fabulous and fashion scooters. So, um, so we love the Christian Siriano, it, not it, just because like it was a particularly very deeply flattering dress, right? Like Billy Porter has an amazing figure in this. Wasn't yeah. necessarily highlighting that first and foremost, but it was a really landmark moment yeah. in gender. And he also didn't hide his face either. So it wasn't also like he was doing right. drag, which is no offense to anyone doing drag because Shangela came in there and she looked amazing. Mm-hmm. She looked like a white woman, but she looked amazing. Yes. It's a whole other subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but Billy Porter did not also hide his face. So like, right. you know, his beard was there. It was beautifully trimmed. His hair, you know, nicely short and locked. He looked really, really stunning. Yeah. And that was a huge moment. Yeah. I think for men, women, fashion, for everyone, Christian Siriano's designer. Because it's permission. Yeah. You know, and Christian Siriano's designer that we know from um, Project, Project Runway. Runway, who is subverting and breaking so many glass ceilings when it comes to fashion. He is. I don't, th- I don't think he's like changing the game in terms of like the conceptual nature of the fashion, but what he is really moving the needle on is representation and who and how he is showing his work, right? He's really inclusive in his casting of yes. that in terms of age, body, body type. Gender, orientation, race. Yeah. race, absolutely. Like, and he has said no one is off limits. Very publicly, that like that is the hill that he's dying on, and that's the collection that he's doing. He did. He had a collection at New York Fashion Week, which was uh, three weeks ago. Yeah, really recently. Three weeks ago, mm-hmm. it's Fashion Month. Yes. Everyone, it's Fashion Freaking Month. It's I'm my exhausted. favorite month. <laughs> I'm, exa- I'm, I'm already exhausted. I'm already exhausted. <laughs> I haven't even traveled anywhere. Right. You know? I have, I'm not even covering the shows this year. Yeah. Like, like I'm tied tie for the people who are. <laughs> right. Like I, there's so, there were so many shows. Um, and um, follow me. I have a Facebook group, The Beauty RKO, and I have an Instagram, The Beauty RKO. We are your comedy fashion history podcast. So you can follow me on either one of those. On the Instagram, I'm always going to post pictures about the things we're talking about. And on the Facebook group, it is the time to share and talk about these subjects and ideas and please share as much as you want to um even like it's here to support you in terms of like if you want to make a new fashion evolution in your own life that is a major thing that i love to talk to people about join the dialogue join the dialogue um but it is fashion month and i'm really excited about it and within fashion month sadly lagerfeld died rest so carl lagerfeld we're, we're, I'm going to introduce okay. it. I want to introduce Lagerfeld because I have a whole introduction. Okay. But I want to say, do we so- need to like get some air first? We'll get some air. <laughs> but before we take a little break, I just want to say because you know Lagerfeld died, he ran Chanel, and we're going to talk so much about him in a minute. Um, but something really amazing happened, and 
you know, they didn't know who was going to run Chanel because he really didn't die with like a, a successor named for a lot of people publicly. But Virginie, who is a woman who has been by his side for over 20 years, I mean, she is right-hand woman like all Chanel. She's a really amazing woman. I've seen her in interviews and documentaries. You can tell she just has this amazing brain. She's his second. She was his second in command for many, many years. For many, many years. She will be running Chanel. Which is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. Because a lady is running a house. And a lady has not run the house Chanel since Coco Chanel herself. (sighs) So this is a really big deal. With that, we're going to take a small little break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Karl Lagerfeld. Can't wait. Beauty RKO, your comedy, fashion, history, shady podcast. We're broadcasting live on full service radio at the Lion Hotel in DC. Um, I just want to say I'm looking out in like the crowd because we have this glass box that we sit in and I'm like looking at all these people and there's someone with this beautiful like raspberry pink hat and this like fur collar around She's them. She's giving the most. She's giving and the I'm most. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> I really hope she hears this podcast one day to know that I love you, boo. <laughs> We're calling it in. We're calling it in. Um, so we are... This is fashion history. Do you love history? I love history. And actually, I took a, a history of couture class when I was Ooh. in college. Ooh. Yes. This is, I didn't know that. Because I love the intersection of um, sort of fashion at, and, and couture specifically mm-hmm. as a manifestation of like the particular like culture, sociocultural yes. historical moment. Yes. Right? So you really can use fashion to trace back like what was happening at that time and how it was manifesting. See, she learned stuff in school. She doing learned. it. But now she's in my class, Professor Noir here. We're all here for P Noir. <laughs> P so Noir. What do, got, what do we got going on today, Prof? Um, so let's talk about an amazing man who was a huge inspiration in my life, who influenced how I dressed, how I looked at fashion, how I saw the presentation of fashion, and understood the fantasy of fashion, how you could live it every day. The Kaiser himself, Karl Lagerfeld. Woo! Um, Karl Lagerfeld was born in 1933, September 10th. Um, he's been, he was known for his bold designs, constant reinvention. He was hailed in vogue as the unparalleled interpreter of the mood of the moment. Lagerfeld died sadly this past February 19th in 2019. But we're going to talk about Lagerfeld the man first. Mm-hmm. I went, so I have... When I say that I'm a Karl Lagerfeld nut, when I was in college and friends and people at Sarah Lawrence calling you out can attest to this, I dressed like Lagerfeld for a good four year straight. Oh, so tell our listening audience how he dressed. What well, let's the, talk what about. it was. Yeah. yeah. So I the Lagerfeld uniform, if uh, you will. So I wore all black. Okay. All the time, mm-hmm. tight jeans, ripped jeans, mm-hmm. um, 
knee high like leather boots mm. lots of chains okay um i didn't have my hair coiffed at the time i had it like he, I has, even... he has a powdered white ponytail has. sunglasses mm. <laughs> i mean let's be clear in whatever comes next his hair is still impeccable his, still, his hair is still impeccable <laughs> black glasses that he would never take off and a shrunken suit and a shrunken suit how but this fashion is a... kaiser fashion kaiser so this is a funny thing. So in my research, there's a wonderful documentary, which I'll post on the Facebook group, The Beauty RKO. Um, and it's a documentary done by a, by a German television station about Lagerfeld, uh, I want to say about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And they really went uh, deep into his life. Um, Lagerfeld grew up, was born in, again, 1933 in Germany. Lest we forget what Germany was like. So Germany... After the World War I, we are getting into the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic um, was really like a, a system in which they were trying to push Germany into a democratic republic. Germany had really undergone a lot through World War I with the destruction of the aristocracy, you know, the fall of the Kaiser Wilhelm Empire. I'm generalizing a lot. So, Jew, has, Jew historians <laughs> out there, don't come for me. This is a shady podcast. <laughs> let y'all know. I'm Kaiser with his little small arm. Um, and, and the Weimar Republic, you see a revolution in culture where it is this explosion of science, intellectual knowledge, the, like the exchange of knowledge, art, the Bauhaus movement, the mm-hmm. Bauhaus fucking modern movement mm-hmm. that influenced all of Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> film and cinema exploded at that the time. The film and Germany. cinema exploded. Um, sexuality exploded. The ex- mm-hmm. exploration of people's sexuality, the depths of their sexuality exploded. And these are very public things being talked about. Right. It was, it was very progressive. It was very progressive. Cut to the fall of the global economic, you know, scale in the, in the Great Depression. And you see the rise of... Um, you know, hardcore nationalism in Germany. And with that, you get Hitler. I almost blanked on his goddamn name. That's how much <laughs> I like want to forget him. I do not. I'm I mean, s- fair. I just want to tell everyone right now, I hate Nazis. I hate talking about Nazis. They always come up every time you talk about things between like 1930 to 1950. And there's so many cool things that happen with history, especially fashion history. But Nazis always come up. And I'm just like... Well, and they, but they touched the, the fashion industry but too. But that's what they... and. Girl. So, like Coco Chanel was girl. out here sleeping with Nazis. Girl. Like straight up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, 1930 Nazis, Nazi Germany is on the rise. Karl Lagerfeld's family, they were a wealthy family. They're a wealthy family in Germany, but they were of the Weimar Republic sect. Mm-hmm. So they believed in a more democratic form of government and society. Um, however, it's very interesting because I did not find connection between like Lagerfeld. Lagerfeld's family and like Nazi interactions, which I found really interesting, which I think is really got great because you know, like after Lagerfeld, he's been he has been like he's been asked about that a lot, and he's, he's like notoriously kind of private about it. He's very private, but I found an interview. Okay, I found an interview, and What's he actually said, "I when I got to the house of Chanel in the 1980s, because Coco Chanel in the 1930s, which was a dead house at the time, which was a dead house at the time, because Coco Chanel had." such a long affair with the Nazis, both physically had an affair with the Nazi, and also um, the Nazi sales in the 1930s of Chanel Number no. 5 made her incredibly wealthy. Yeah, she and really benefited from like kind of standing on the wrong side of history. She really did, and the French kicked her out for it, and she had to escape to Switzerland and live mm-hmm. there for almost like 15 years. Right. And that 
same, and even though she came back in the 50s, that, that veneer, that, that filth of never. Nazi never really left. Right. And even when she died, it still started to bubble back up for a lot of people. So when he got to the house of Chanel, people were like, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Why are you getting to that house? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's all this and this as well. Well, and it had a reputation in the 80s as being totally irrelevant, right? They'd been making the same tweed suit for decades, and it had never been... It had never been re- reinvented. You know, they were selling to like old white ladies, and like that's about it. And that was about it. That was about it. And and then in comes this like hot young designer, hot young designer who was already making a name, who already made a name at Chloe in the mm-hmm. 1970s. Lagerfeld, his whole thing about his work in the 1970s, his work in fashion, what he uh, he really attuned to was called the total look, where he. Uh, um, prescribed a full look of accessories, of the apparel, everything kind of like works together. Not necessarily matchy, but work together. But the thing was this, is that you can wear it with other pieces in the collection. Right. So he very allowed, mix and match. So it was very mix and match, but still matched. Right. So that was the thing that he was really all about. And he did that at Chloe, he did that at Fendi, and then he got to Chanel. And the thing he said about Chanel, he's like, the first time, the first moment I got there, I want to do everything I can on the runway and with the collections to dispel the idea of Chanel's past with Nazi Germany. Right. And the reason with that, you know what he did? He created those looks. He created these looks of the long gold chains and these exaggerated Chanel looks and reinvented her into a modern 80s power woman. Right. He took sort of the the different design tenets of Chanel and took them to such an extreme contemporary iteration Mm -hmm. as to reinvent them, right? So, like, in Chanel, you you did have, you know, sort of the quilted bag with, like, the chain strap that was a tenant of of sort of that house or, like, pearls. And so he would layer on pearls and chains to a point of being, like, BDSM and punk. Exactly. He would take that quilted bag, he would take that chain from that quilted bag and wrap it around. Ooh, he real cute. I know. We're, like, all going, oh, hey, hey, boo-boo. Some, like, cute boys just walked in the lobby (laughs) and we both all... <laughs> um, anyway, so he layered on all this like stuff. Like, layered on all the punk. chains. Yeah, I know, like, girl. <laughs> layered on all the chains, like, super, super punk. Made the dresses slimmer, actually. That's mm-hmm. what he did with the Chanel suit. He slimmed the Chanel suit. He made the skirt mm-hmm. tighter, just a hint shorter, just above the knee. I was going to say, Coco never wanted to show the knee, and he brought it out, and it yeah. popped off. He made this, like, stodgy old suit, like, really hip and fresh. Really hip and fresh. And um, there is a wonderful article that w- or that Vogue magazine did that I will post on, again, on the Facebook group, so please follow it, that does a review of his best looks by year mm. up until 2019. That's cool. And they do the Chanel suit from 1987. Okay. And it is two women in this, this like, poppy, not even poppy red, like, lipstick red, tweed, yeah. boucle tweed. The boucle tweed is a very, like, frothy, fluffy thick. tweed, thick tweed. But it's lightweight, and it moves, right. and it breathes, funny enough. That's very interesting about that. And the tweeds by Chanel, just so you know, are woven by Lesage. Um, and Lesage is a very, is a synonymous company with Couture. They do everyone's stuff, but they're woven by Lesage and Lesage only. The braiding on a Chanel jacket is done by the same woman. I don't know if she's dead yet. And that one was like nine years old, 10 years ago. Oh, I know. Now, if she survived, because she used to Still do the, holding on. she did the braiding for Coco. 
So that, and that's an interesting thing to point like, out, right? That these houses have really been working with the same like handcraft artisans yeah. for decades. Yeah. No. And it's not right? like, like blessings to that woman. Like, yeah. please continue holding on. On this haute couture <laughs> Chanel suit, not on the, on, not on the ready to wear, but on the haute couture Chanel suit, there is one woman that does the braiding on those Amazing. jackets. Wow. One. That's so great. And she did not teach anyone else how to do it. No, of course not. She <laughs> wants to make sure that she is indispensable. She was like, she will take that shit she to the grave. Is old French, tough, smoking, and little. <laughs> and little. And I feel like yeah. she would shake you t- 10 times before you looked at you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but yep. she, prison, just prison. Just these prison chicks. <laughs> um, but Coco Chanel was tough. But I mean, we're not talking about Coco. I want to talk about Lagerfeld. I want to go back yeah. to Lagerfeld because I want to go back off of him because this is the thing about Lagerfeld that I found really interesting about delving into him as a person. Do you know, we talked about me wearing Lagerfeld and like how I used to dress like Lagerfeld just yeah. now. Personal uniform. Personal uniform. Do you know when his personal uniform developed? Uh, the 90s? As a boy. Oh, really? So in this documentary, he said that he used to wear a black jacket, a white shirt, a black bow tie and black pants. I, here's what I find. And he kept to be his hair long. I mean, of course. As a kid, even. I'm so curious to like because what Carl is better at than like basically anything else, at least to me, is his ability to sort of like build the mythos around. Yes. Him for brands, of course, right? To sort of like build a, build the world. Yeah. In which the clothing lives, but for himself to like build himself into like the idea of this person. It comes from childhood. So that's another thing. I, I, I gotta put this up. I don't know. I'm gonna throw some shade a little bit. Like, I would be curious to see, like, actually how much of that is, and we can't necessarily even know, but like, how much is true and how much is just like the well, story he's telling about himself. But I Because he's it, lied, like, he's lied about his age for years. Oh, of course. But like, that's age. But like, the thing I found really interesting is like the things he was saying was just, these are like fun, these are memories that you, I, I don't, I can't see someone lying about. Yeah. So basically, he was saying like, as a kid. That's wild. Yeah. So that's as, a really contiguous vision to have over a long period of time. But I mean, like, I think about myself, I'm still in black. You and are. I've been, and I wasn't only wearing black in college. Like, I started yeah. wearing black in freaking high school because yeah. I was like, fashion, you wear black. Yes. And this is how you wear black. And you do it with it, texture. It's part of the myth. Yeah. Like it's, but the thing is I learned about him was that he was saying like, as a kid, you know, his family, his dad was really rich. His mom was like, a, his mom was a very wealthy German woman as well, obviously because mm-hmm. they're rich. Uh, <laughs> but they moved from Hamburg, which was like the Bethesda of Germany. Like <laughs> where they were, like it really was. Where, like they were got talking, so much shade for Bethesda. Like it was like, when he was talking about his neighborhood, they were like, it was just nothing but mansions and gardens. I was like, so he's like in Bethesda of Germany. Okay. Yeah. Like in the Potomac of like Germany. <laughs> but and, also like his dad ran a dairy business. So like they were not ran, like aristocrats. No, but his dad ran and his dad brought evaporated milk to Germany. That's a big deal. Thanks, Daddy. Yeah, thanks, Daddy. <laughs> thanks, Milk Daddy. Um, and oh, Milk Daddy. That's hashtag Milk Daddy. Hashtag Milk Daddy. Um, and <laughs> Lagerfeld's going to turn his grave. But he was saying that his mom was kind of a tough woman. Like she was very critical. Oh, yeah. She defended yeah, him that. and her kids down to the hill. But she never came to any of the shows. She never came to any of the shows, and she was a very tough woman. Yeah. And she's a very tough woman. She's like, well, I never went to your father's office. Yeah, she was a very critical woman. Like, um, you bitch. Yeah, yeah, but she was like, "That's work. I don't, yeah. I don't go to work." <laughs> hair flip, hair yeah. flip. <laughs> and so, and she would, and so the thing was, is that he hated when people, as a kid, would say hi to him, ask him a stupid question, and then turn their back and start talking to his parents because kids were meant to be seen and not heard. Right. So he said, "I decided to just one up them, basically." So you my can't par- ignore me. Yeah, you're not going to ignore me. So he was like, "When my parents would speak English and French, so I wouldn't understand them, I decided to learn English and French before I even got to school." 
Mm-hmm. So he, so I can, so he had already had this idea of yeah. if you're gonna try to one up me, I'm gonna one up you. Yep. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I'm absolutely. not taking that. I don't do that. He's a Virgo, so like Virgo men don't play that. Very exacting. You know, yeah. they're very exacting. They're wanderers in terms of knowledge and information. And so he was like that as a kid. Yeah. He was. He was always drawing. He. They even interviewed people that were in school with him on this documentary mm-hmm. that were in elementary like small like school with him and they were like yeah he was super weird but super nice well and that's the thing like he really has sort of built the, this mythos around himself and people sort of see him as um sort of almost a caricature of like the frivolity of fashion but anybody who uh, uh, you know based on reports and articles and stuff anybody who knew him found him to be very warm yeah very funny yeah very- he- he apparently loves kids, so he's all. That's mm-hmm. why his like godson was always in every runway show. Yeah, you know, um, I found it really interesting the fact that, um, you know, going into his later life, mm-hmm. just to like move ahead a little bit more. I don't want to like I don't want to lose all the story um, of Lagerfeld because there's a lot to go into. But going into his later life after school and everything like that, that's when he in the 1950s. So as a kid, he went to a Dior show in the 1950s, in like the mid to late 50s. Which, is, which was a seminal time in Dior because they were putting, together, putting out what was called the new look. It was the pivotal time in fashion right. in the world. It totally redesigned silhouette, nipped in waist. Redesigned. A-line dresses. He re, Dior redesigned how we saw life. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to do a show about Dior because that is, I'm already getting chills. Yeah, Dior, Dior redesigned how we saw life. Dior gave people fantasy while there was literally a broken destroyed building next to you and Mm -hmm. and you could and you're still rationing food and Lagerfeld being one during the World War II his family moved out of Hamburg and moved to I wrote it down it's like Bauschberg or something like that Bauschberg um they moved outside of Hamburg into the country into a country house so they actually were very much so shielded from World War II for the most part from a lot of the violence of it. So to think about this kid living a certain life where he was shielded during his formative years and then going into the 1950s in Paris where his father then started putting his business and owning an apartment there and then seeing fantasy, he really had this, he really had this trail from a very young age of, one, creating fantasy, mm-hmm. creating a shield, yeah. creating an idea about yourself that subverts everything and right. that makes people feel something right one well, and, pr- and protects you and protects you and yeah. protects you and he also said that he's like i'm a survivor i have great survival instincts and you can kind of t- and you can tell yeah. even just in his collections alone his collections change with chanel they move trends they create trends absolutely well and carl was really known as um in an industry that is often referencing um past collections mm-hmm. and historical fashion he was always on the edge of looking for what's next what's next what's next he was obsessive about falling youth culture and so and and this is very interesting to go back into the start so when he was um early in his career i have so much about here about the weimar republic i just really went into it (laughs) (laughs) um but early in his career that really started off um in um 1955 he entered a contest a fashion contest called the international wool secretariat and this is a contest that awarded um, designers the chance to work at a big house and really like form and create their career. Kind of like the first Project Runway. Mm-hmm. And guess who came in third? Oh, didn't Yves Saint Laurent? Yes. Yeah. Yves Saint Laurent came in third. Legendary French 
fucking Yves Saint Laurent came in third and Lagerfeld came in first. Mm-hmm. And they became friends at that competition, but also competitors. Yeah. So Yves Saint Laurent... they notoriously were... We're, go- we're about to talk about that. Okay, don't, don't go too far. Oh, so much tea. I, I know, there's tea. so much tea because we're about to spill the tea, girl. Where okay. is the mop? Get the tea out. <laughs> and so Yves Saint Laurent and Carl Lagerfeld became friends. Around that time, Valentino started working in Paris and they all became friends. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine three powerhouse designers, Valentino, Lagerfeld, and Yves Saint Laurent trotting through Paris, gay as hell, yes. super amazing, super fashionable, geniuses, mm-hmm. making the most beautiful clothes. But still at the very beginning of their careers. Still at the very beginning of their careers, though, but pulling a serious Olivier Rustique. Yes. Just saying. Yes, true. You know, true, like, true, true. giving you a Zach Posen, you know, giving you Parenza Schauler, you know what I mean? These mm-hmm. young men creating new silhouettes for people and new ideas about fashion. Um, but... In the 1970s, when they were all really settling into their careers, popping, Paris was on fire. Fire. Now, Paris was on fire for several different reasons. There was a very heavy anti-Americanism sensibility about Paris. They were were changing politically. Mm -hmm. A lot of things were happening in Paris, but at the same time, this was the era of disco. And disco was both a European and American influence, but a a lot of it was coming, a lot of the American influence of disco was transferring over in, back into Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... And the Bohemian sort of sensibility that was coming sen- through, and that was really manifested in, like, the, the East Cellarall si- West Bank collections. And that was... and But that was late 60s. So you had pair... You had Bohemian Yves Saint Laurent, mm-hmm. Disco Lagerfeld, friends, but then there's a really famous piece of ass... That yes. really... <laughs> the love of Lagerfeld's life. The love of Lagerfeld's life. Um... Who, uh, I mean, I want to say he really changed how Lagerfeld saw the world. His name is Jacques de Bachet, mm-hmm. um, born 1951, died 1989 of AIDS, sadly. He was like the Paris dandy. He yeah. knew everyone. Everyone loved him. He was the most debaucherous, the most glamorous. Lagerfeld actually talked about their relationship as being um, kind of a father-son relationship, which I found really interesting, mm-hmm. have a mentor-mentee relationship. Mm-hmm. However, Lagerfeld can never rein him in. Because he was... Well, and so he ran around. And he ran around. And ended up with Yves Saint Laurent. And ended up with Yves Saint Laurent, who was with... Snatched. Who was with Pierre Belger at the time. So Pierre Belger and Lagerfeld are, like, fighting. And then Yves Saint Laurent and Lagerfeld are fighting. And it splits the fashion world. Right. You had to pick a team. Down the middle. And you had to pick a team. Funny T. Serious T. Because this, like, really split the industry. This split clients... This split people all over, which also gave us a little, gave the American space during at the Battle of Versailles, the big Versailles show in 1970. Very famous runway show. Very famous runway show in 1973 that gave the Americans the end to actually just kind of subvert themselves into the international fashion scale and the national fashion market. And and that was the turning point, right? Like, and Robin Gavan. Uh, fashion critic for the Washington Post, who is the only person to ever win a Pulitzer for fashion criticism, wrote a really amazing book called I, The Battle of Versailles. And I really want her to get on this show at some point. Robin's great. <laughs> um, but, she, you know, and she talks about how, like, uh, that fashion show, The Battle of Versailles, is the first time that, like, it, it, the American designers came in and, um, and, and like, they beat the French at yeah. their own game. Like, but you know what's really funny is that Lagerfeld actually was not in that with the right. with the French designers, right. Saint Laurent was right, but a because Lager- of all the tea, because of all the tea, because mm-hmm. of all the tea. So so Saint Laurent got the show. Lagerfeld did not get the show. However, Lagerfeld later in nineteen eighties 
got a opportunity to join and to run a very stuffy French fashion house called Chanel. Yes. And we already talked about this, but I wanted to say something really funny about the house of Chanel that people don't know. So, you know, Lagerfeld set out to um, do many things with Chanel and really transform the image of Chanel and partly with its history with the Nazi past. This is really funny about Chanel. Chanel is owned by um, the the Wertheimer brothers, the Wertheimer family bought Chanel and created Chanel um, as a brand in 1924. When Nazi Germany and the Nazi party came and um, populated France, they created laws so that Jewish people could not own businesses and homes like that. Mm. Chanel tried to sue the Weimar, the wife, the worth my, the Wertheimer family. <laughs> sorry. Um, so many times before that. So, like, to the point where they had a separate lawyer that only handled Chanel trying to sue them, mm-hmm. right? Because she wanted her name back. Mm-hmm. So then, when the Nazis came in, the Wertheimer family put their company's name in their friend's name, who was a German Christian, a German Catholic. Oh, they transferred the company. To transferred them. the company, just so Chanel couldn't get her hands on it. Right. Then, <laughs> when it was over, they transferred it back to them. Mm-hmm. And so Coco Chanel never got to own Smart. this company. And this family still fucking owns this company to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I find really freaking interesting. Like, you want to talk about tea. You mm-hmm. want to talk about irony, girl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is funny. You know, it's just crazy. It's just like, while these freaking Nazis in the 1930s were spending all this money, you're just giving it right back to a family that's going to take it in 1950. Right. To, to Jews. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And they use that money in a really good way because I looked up a lot about that family and they are really interesting. They're really, really interesting. It's funny when you do research, by the way, when you go into like fashion knowledge and, fa- and history research, you find one name. You're just like, OK, I need to understand what that's about. OK, I need to understand what that's about. And then I, it's so fun like, to go down the rabbit hole. Oh, I literally have three pages about the Weimar Republic that I didn't even talk about, you guys. And it was for no so reason. So go do a Google. <laughs> it's fascinating. I will put all this research up for you. Um <laughs> But so, you know, Lagerfeld at Chanel, like I said, really transformed fashion, the experience of fashion. And, you know, we're getting down to like the closer end of his life, but, you know, or the closer end of this. But what I wanted to really talk about um, more than anything is the one thing that he did for me that I think a lot of people don't always pay attention to was the actual production of a Chanel show. Mm hmm. It was like seeing an opera for 20 minutes to 30 minutes. Yeah, it's very theatrical. He it's, really built the, the whole world. He really through built... sets and music through and all sets, the elements. sets, music. I mean, some of my favorite singers, Shamir, Shamir, I found listening to, watching a Chanel show, mm-hmm. something a la mode. I was listening to Biking Here, My Crocodile Pumps. Great. Um, listening to something a la mode, who <laughs> did a song with Lagerfeld called Rondo Parisiano, is Lagerfeld's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, saying a lot of things in French with a very German accent. It's really funny. <laughs> um, but, you know, he really transformed his show. One of my favorite shows was spring 2006, I want to say. It was a spring Haute Couture 2006. And he did what they call, a, he did a stairway to heaven. And he found, and he got the idea for the show. What he said in, a, um, in an interview was from a dream. And he often got a lot of ideas from dreams. Yeah, he did. And so all these beautiful pieces were very frothy, heavy amounts of feathers, ostrich feathers, marabou feathers turned into flowers and rosettes, um, very frilly, mm-hmm. very heavy ruffle collection. But all the models walked out onto a round stage 
in the pal in the Grand Palais was where he did all of his shows in Paris. Mm -hmm. Walked into a round stage with this giant tower in the middle of the runway, mm -hmm. all yeah, white, and they would go into the they would press the button, go into the door, and go into the tower. And you're like, well, where are they going? They just keep going into the tower and not coming out. Mm -hmm. At the very end of the show, and yes, I will post the video for this show because it's one of my favorite shows yeah, of all great. time, it's of classic. all fashion. At the very end of the show, the most beautiful, heavenly, angelic music of just like string chords, a, a string quartet of just chords mm -hmm. in like ascending, diminished tones keeps going up and up and crescendoing. And what happens? The stairway, this entire cylindrical stairway cover lifts into the air, into the air of the Grand Palais, revealing a giant like spiral staircase of all of the models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was the most beautiful. I mean, the light from the sun that day came right into that thing. Like, you could yes. not even plan this moment. Mm -hmm. He could not even control this moment. Yeah. The light, Lagerfeld anointed. Like, Lager, like lit, and it was said that Anwen Tor cried at the end of the I show. I don't believe that. I, I honestly... <laughs> I mean... I, I might, because he got a full-on standing ovation at the end of his oh, show. Oh, wow. That's amazing. A full-on... And, like, Anna Wintour can cry? Yeah, like, a full-on standing ovation, because, I mean, when you saw that staircase, I, I cannot tell you, when that sunlight hit those models, you cannot plan that. No, you, you cannot can. plan no, you that. Can. And he was very blessed in a lot of his career. He was very blessed in a lot of his career, but he really directed a lot of his career. And there are several things that he also did, not just fashion, that's very, very important that I really want people to know. And, yes, he was a crazy person. He was a wild, crazy person. He was an eccentric. And the great thing is, too, if you listen to interviews, he knows he's eccentric. He was not afraid to completely be who he was, he was, which I think is a really good lesson. Yeah, he was not completely afraid. But also, it's really funny how much of like the stuff that he does, if you listen, kind of just comes from like his own logic. It's like, I don't like doing this, so I, I don't want people to see my eyes, so I just wear sunglasses. Like, well, but he also, that also played out problematically sometimes, yeah. right? Because he, he, was like, he was like, I think fat people are ugly. Yeah. Like, and straight up. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's just like, again, a human like, being. No, Carl, you can't. No. But you know what? As a, as a human being, I do not applaud him for saying that. I'm just like, girl, if I was your friend, that's why I'm like, you should have had a black American friend, but you did not have, really. I can <laughs> Evolve, tell. please, Carl. Because I was just, because that friend would have been like, girl, you stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you stupid. Stop saying stupid. Stop saying stupid stuff because they're going to call you stupid. You're going to be mm -hmm. mad. You know, I definitely agree with you on that. Like he would say things like that. Not OK. Um, but I will not I will not cancel culture him and say that he was a bad person. Oh, totally. No, he was just very clear about like what he liked when he didn't like. And, and you know, and sometimes could he have evolved. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes he was just old lady about it where he's just like, he's I don't clear. like fat people. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's real. You know, get my dentures, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, but I will say before we go, I, I want to just say like he also did so much with fashion and the, the surrounding areas of fashion. He was a photographer. He was a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. um, he was a illustrator. Um, he created products. He, and, he really innovated like the, the high-end fashion par brand partnerships um, and the experience with places like H and M. Yeah, and and he was and he when Halston was like outed ousted of the fashion industry for the first person to really do licensing with a lower end brand. Lagerfeld was one of the first people to really bring that back. There was right, Isis to Rahi, do it well. There was Miss Rahi first right. and Todd Oldham with Target. Yes, true, true, true. 
Let's not give. Let's not. I'm not going to come there with That's Isaac because he he's going to come, come and cut me, girl. Yeah, true. But <laughs> Lagerfeld really made that famous. Yeah, he did. He was the line around the block. He was. Yeah, he was the line that. around the and literally because I remember I was in high school and I totally skipped school for that. <gasps> what did you buy? Do you I t- remember? I got the T-shirt that okay. had his face on it, and I got a black blazer because I was like, I have to have a black blazer by Lagerfeld. Yes. And I was, I was <laughs> so happy. I kept those items probably for like 15 years, and at oh some point, God. I've lost them. Um, and then, oh my God! And then when I lived in New York, I met a lady, this really beautiful, amazing black lady, who was Lagerfeld's PR person for Lager, Carl Lagerfeld, his line. Okay. So Lagerfeld also, before we go, I'm just like I keep like coming back to so many things. He, he had a long life; he had 85 years. Um, but he had many, many lines. And one of the things that he did in fashion was that he was not about having his own line specifically. At first, Lagerfeld came much later out of all of it. What he did before what everyone else did was that he he contracted himself out to other collections. Right, which is very common. Which is very common now, but when he was starting, yeah. that wasn't very that's common. That's true. People you got to a house, house and you stayed at that house. Yeah, that's very true. He was he definitely positioned himself as a gun for hire, and he would re- reinvent his vision bam, bam. depending upon that house. <laughs> <laughs> and he really did. And he really um, revitalized houses. Yeah, he did. He and, was known for doing that. And he, w- he was really the first one to do that long before. For like Tom Ford at Gucci, for instance. Yeah, uh, he had he had the 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 gift of regeneration. What is it called again? Resurgence from Coven. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kate, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. For Professor coming. Noir. Thank you. This has been amazing. This has been the first show of the Beauty Archeo. Well, and, and you were the first guest on my podcast. I was the first guest on your so podcast. Here, and you're the first sex, guest on mine. And I'm the first guest on yours. I'm so, ex- I'm so happy that you were here. I couldn't have picked a better person. I'm so thank glad you that you said me. Like said yes. Um, but people, this is the Beauty Archeo, your comedy fashion history podcast. I hope we got a little bit shady today for you. We're going to get more shadier as time goes on. And we will be back again. Have a good night. <laughs>